I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a, a cast, a pod. Today, Robert Evans, me, Behind the Bastards, this podcast. We talk about bad people, and I... I don't do a very good job of introducing the show that is the entirety of my job to do and also to introduce. Um, I apologize for that. Today, we have a little bit of a special episode for y'all. We're, we're talking about the golden age of terrorism, and I'll explain what that is in a minute. And my guests are a couple of, uh, of, of friends and colleagues of mine from the, uh, the real world um, and, and the mean streets of Portland, Oregon. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, two two of the people I get repeatedly tear gassed and grenaded, and threatened with firearms sometimes with. Uh, B and Elaine. Hello. Hi. How how are y'all doing tonight? I'm doing okay. I'm not getting threatened with grenades or tear gas. Yeah, that's um always a fun thing to do, especially since probably uh, some of our friends will get threatened with grenades and tear gas tonight. More likely than not. Yeah, that's most most nights. So, uh, you wanna you wanna tell the listeners a little bit about yourself since you're not you're not coming into this as uh as 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 uh big time stand up comedians like most of our guests, or as local youths like Garrison. Oh, Garrison. Yeah. Um, yeah, so my name's B, um, and I'm half of 45th Absurdist. We're a journalist collective that started as a shitposting account, and then there was a curfew, and our friend Robert wanted some backup, so we went and started reporting on stuff, and now three months later, we're still reporting on stuff, 
And we've been shot with a lot more tear gas and grenades and pepper balls since then. Yeah, an, an amount that seems almost impossible. It's sort of silly. When you, when you try to take stock of it. I have now been tear gassed with you more times than I can count. Yes. Yes, that is very accurate. But certainly, I can confirm north of 100 times. Um, so, yeah, that's that's being Elaine. And today, we're going to talk about the golden age of terrorism. Do you, do y'all, what do, you, what do, you, do you know anything about the golden age of terrorism? Is that a term you've heard prior to tonight? I assume it involves bell bottoms and just massive quantities of cocaine and AK-47s. Yes to everything but the AK-47. So really? this is a fascinating period because w- w- when you're, we're talking about the, the golden age of terrorism is like the 60s up through the late 70s. Okay. And some people would say into the 80s. One of the things that's fascinating about it is that modern body armor didn't really exist. Like you, you had some, you know, some flak vests and stuff. You had some stuff that could maybe stop some pistol rounds, but like it was very uncommon and it didn't work well. So fucking everybody in terrorism uses machine pistols. So like, which are like oh. like little handguns that fire a bunch of rounds really uh-huh, fast. Uh-huh. So you can just jam them in like the door of a building and just spray it down with gunfire. So it's okay. like a lot of fucking scorpion machine pistols and stuff. Nine mils. I'm familiar with this. And Tokarevs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All of the all of the 80s action movies have prepared yes. me. For and this. every good James Bond film. And every good. Ja- th- that's why I'm excited to talk about today, because like terrorism, real bummer these days. Right. Like it's mostly you're going to kill a lot of innocent people. You're going to specifically try to just kill innocent people most of the time. And usually if you're a terrorist now, like one way or the other, you want to like kill everyone in the world, pretty much Mm -hmm. like you're ISIS and you want to kill all the people who aren't Muslims. You're some Nazi and you want to kill everybody who's not like your kind of white, like whatever, whatever kind of terrorist you are. It's a bleak ass kind of terrorist. Whereas in the 60s and 70s. There were some fun terrorists. Like, I mean, they they killed a lot of people. Wow. Like, but did any of them want to drown Silicon Valley to make France the new hub of technology? Not, no. But Which James Bond movie is that? That would have been that would have been fun. One of the good ones. There is there there is there is a pretty good attack on OPEC though. Um, wow. Well. Yeah. So it was like you you've got in this period of time. Number one, the world wasn't quite so bleak, so terrorism was like a lot more fun, um, and it's a lot cooler. Everybody's like walking around in machine pistols. They got like fucking bell bottoms. Great, great outfits. You've got all these cool, like different, you know, liberation movements that aren't all religious extremists and stuff. It's a fun time to talk about terrorism. I love terrorism. Um, and the main thing people do isn't just suicide bomb others too and fire randomly into businesses full of people. Um, Neat. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about plane hijackings, skyjackings. Oh, yes. Yeah. I yeah. just keep thinking of now Saturday Night Live, like episodes from my childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of those 80s episodes make jokes. And there's like the movie Airplane. There's a yes, joke of it. We'll sure. talk about we're, all that in a second. Oh, good. So we're going to talk about the golden age of terrorism. And that's mostly going to be in part one. We're mostly going to talk about skyjackings and the Japanese Red Army, which is a yeah. fun group. And then part two is going to be all Carlos the Jackal, oh. who used to be the most wanted terrorist in the world and is a neat guy. Is, is I mean, a monster. Is Pelican but, Brief? Maybe he was definitely the one right. in uh, the Day of the Jackal. Well, wow. he, that's actually where his name came from. But the, when they made the movie about it, it was pretty inspired. But anyway, yeah, Carlos the Jackal, um, who, as you can tell by his incredible nickname, um, one of the coolest terrorists to learn about ever. Bodies, bones. I mean, bones. 
cracks Probably. open bones and sucks out the marrow somewhere he in was, Sub-Saharan he Africa? Was, he, he was one of the guys who was like there for all of Black September, so he may have had to eat a couple of bones out in the deserts of Jordan. Okay, well, this, um, will, this is lots of things that'll be new to me. Yeah, so, uh, but before we get into anything else, uh, I want to start by talking about the phenomenon that most defined the golden age of terrorism, which is skyjacking. And no, that does not refer to masturbating on an aircraft because masturbating on an aircraft isn't a crime. Uh, and in some cases, it's actually mandatory. I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, I've seen a very specific movie from the 70s that implies that. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yep. Yeah. I don't remember. The opening which, of Misty Beethoven. The opening of Misty Beethoven. There's I've a lot never of heard man- of that movie. Oh, there's a lot of mandatory sex on airplanes. Well, I'm very supportive of skyjacking, that kind of skyjacking, <laughs> and the other kind of skyjacking, actually. Both kinds of skyjacking. <laughs> so, uh, the kind of skyjacking that we're talking about today uh, involves the hijacking of planes, which was a thing that used to happen back in the day before Al Qaeda kind of ruined it forever. Um, nobody gets to enjoy an air. It used to be fun. Hijacking airplanes used to be a joyful affair. Um, and they, <laughs> or at least they the ruined line. it. <laughs> yeah. That's really the crime. No, okay. Probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So the first recorded skyjacking occurred on February 21st, 1931 in Arequipa, Peru, when a group of- They had mm-hmm. passenger planes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1931. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Okay. They would really like one of the crazy things when you study aviation is like how fucking quick it was like, well, now we're just flying these things all over the damn place. Right. Yeah. I don't and, think it was a good passenger plane. Hijacking. And now we're sky, skyjacking. 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 Very hijacking. So the first one, yeah, Arequipa, uh, Arequipa, whatever, Peru, uh, when a group of rebel soldiers uh, accosted two American pilots and tried to force them at gunpoint to drop propaganda leaflets over Lima. Um so the pilot said no, and so the rebels occupied their plane and kind of s- sat around for two weeks, basically. <laughs> um, they, no one was good at it was, yet, It right? wasn't flying. No, they it were just, just kind the of sitting there on the tarmac being like, "Fly, look, drop these pamphlets, fly us around. And the pilots were like, no. And they, and they were like, okay, I guess. Yeah, they weren't dicks. Like, they weren't going <laughs> to murder them, but they really... That seems less like, like less of a skyjacking and more of a sit-in. It, yeah, it was an attempted skyjacking. Um, no one was good at it yet. Uh, but yeah, that was the first attempt at a skyjacking anywhere in the world that, that is on record as far as I can, as far as I can find. Um, and yeah, they didn't get what they wanted in the end. Uh, the pilots were just kind of like, no. <laughs> And like no one else knows how to fly planes because it's 1931. So you really have no other options right now. <laughs> I'm just also in that two weeks, they weren't like, how else can we distribute pamphlets somewhere um, in Peru? You know how it is when you kind of like get your heart set on something. I, I do. Yeah. And you're I already do. there with a gun pointed at the pilot. Sure. And you're on yeah. the tarmac and probably there's like military surrounding you at the airport or no. something. It's 1930. Oh, it's 1930. They're in all Peru. busy. Never mind. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know how much attention it drew. But um, yeah, that's the first one. Uh, now, the first U.S. No. Hmm? Since someone would have to know about it, and it's the 30s. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first U.S. skyjacker was a failed carny named Ernest Pletch. Um, and in 1939, he, he shot his flight instructor in the back of the head during a, during a training flight while oh, in midair and oh, very nearly crashed. Who- because oh. he shot his instructor in the head. Who was flying? Who at was the, flying at the time? That was a bad yeah. call. Also, what a career trajectory. <laughs> yes, failed Carney to skyjacker <laughs> to first American skyjacker. I'm no good at operating this Ferris wheel. Perhaps I'll try stealing an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we all 
That's life. I'm just saying there's one lever on the Ferris wheel. It's a little <laughs> bit more complicated with the airplane. So the uh, yeah, so Ernest Pletch, yeah, shoots his flight instructor, manages to like, I think, throw his corpse out of the plane and like <laughs> take control. Um, and then he okay. kind of goes on the run with this stolen plane. Um, but almost immediately before he can really get into being on the run, he stops for hamburgers. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What? He stops for hamburgers. Well, like he lands the plane. He lands the plane. At a drive-in? No, he lands the plane outside of a town and then he walks into town to get hamburgers. <laughs> well, if you're going to go on the run, you need to be fortified. He yeah. should have packed a lunch. Yeah. So he gets caught by police immediately because he's covered in blood. And the people at the hamburger restaurant are like, this guy seems like he might have done something and, bad. And sorry, where was this? <laughs> um, I, let's see. The uh, I, I forget exactly where Pletch was when he, but some like some were in the middle of fucking America, right? right? So yeah, you know, Just the ins- sheriff was like, "Hey, there's a plane, and that guy's covered in blood." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Caper solved. <laughs> That's good police work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the Pletch case essentially invented a lot of early legal codes for air piracy which is what it's called when you commit crimes like this in the air. And it's the coolest crime you can get charged with, right? (laughs) Like if I had to go commit federal crimes that were going to put me in prison, I would want it to be air piracy. Yeah. Because then people are like, what are you in here for? Well, I was an air pirate. And and you wear a little leather hat and mm-hmm. monocle. And, yeah. yeah. I have a scar on one cheek. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to get a scar on one cheek. That's something you request from law enforcement during the standoff. <laughs> yes. Like, now I'll, I'll let these people live, but you need to wound me so, in such a way that I have exactly one rakish scar on my right cheek. That way, 20 years from now, when Nicolas Cage comes to get me released on prison in a special deal with the federal government because I need to hijack a plane in order to get into Alcatraz, whatever. Wait, that's just my pitch yes. for a okay. movie about Nicholas with Nicolas Cage. You, isn't that the rock? It's I like the it rock, the, but the, in the air the whole oh, time. Oh yeah, it's all it's I a sky. We call it the cloud. It's a sky prison. All the ground prisons are full, so they have sky prisons. Oh, so it's like Escape from New. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, the Pletch case invents a lot of the early legal code for uh, sky crime, air piracy. Um, but by the time the federal government started to oversee aviation in 1958, hijacking a plane still was not technically a crime. <laughs> Nobody really thought they'd need to put that in the locker. So as long as you're not mm-hmm. on the ground or the water, mm-hmm. it's fine. Yeah, it was fine. There were no laws in the sky in 1958. What a beautiful time. It must have been perfect. <laughs> so uh, airports had no security measures in place. There was just nobody did anything about airplanes. Everyone was like, well, f- why would we Why would we eat? even think for a second about airport security there was, it was no reason there was like an aggressive disregard for wanting to take <laughs> like any precautions i so love you're it you're saying it's like when we drive past the national guard car lot yeah the where they just guard assume no one can drive lot, tanks yeah. and they just leave all the tanks sitting there and they're just push button ignitions right. which yeah we shouldn't talk too much about <laughs> that but it's a <laughs> thing you should know and tulio ortiz is the uh, the first guy uh, to hijack a plane successfully. And he gets on a flight bound for Key West and he locks himself in the bathroom. Then he slips a note underneath the door and he warns everyone he's got a bomb. And he he says he'll detonate it if the flight isn't rerouted to Havana. Now, Ortiz timed his attempt well because the Bay of Pigs had happened just a couple of weeks earlier. Tensions were uh, high between mm-hmm. the United States and Cuba. And Castro basically was like, oh shit, Like this is a great opportunity to say fuck you to the United States 
um, and not actually risk anything. So he offers Ortiz political sanctuary. Not super romantic, though, because he's locked in the bathroom. He is. Threatening he the is. plane. He's locked what in the bathroom. What if no one had seen the note? With a bomb. Hmm? Right. Yeah, you you wonder like a number of things about this. Um, <laughs> okay, and my only other question mm-hmm. is: Did he just want to lift to Cuba, or was he taking the plane there for some like reason, or like? Cause... No, he just wanted a lift to Cuba. He just wanted to go to Cuba. There's easier this was the only way he could. Kind of weren't at that point. Really? Yeah, I mean, well, the Bay of Pigs had just happened. Yeah, but you go to another country and like just reroute a little bit. I don't know I don't if know. it was that easy in that time. Here you could lock yourself in a bathroom and slip yeah. a bomb note under the door. That's whatever the reasoning. Ortiz decides this is the way he's going to Cuba. Um, and he doesn't like it there. He actually uh, tries to leave and then gets <laughs> put in prison in Cuba. It takes him like 15 years to get back to the United States. Um, so he he regrets his decision very soon, quickly. Sometimes um, you make your bed and then you lie in it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. then you got to live in Cuba, which I don't know, right now, mm-hmm. maybe not the worst bed in Seems the world. Right. So yeah, so Ortiz, it doesn't work out well for him. He's not super happy with the decision that he made to hijack a plane and get to Cuba. Um, but a lot of people suddenly realize once he's done it, like, it's that easy. Yeah. Like, well, all you got to do is slip up a note under a maybe door. I want to go to Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> so three more U.S. planes were hijacked and taken to Cuba over the course of 1961. Um, and afterwards, it becomes it becomes a meme yeah. um, in the next like eight years. One hundred and seventy seven skyjackings were committed worldwide and more than 70 percent of them involved an attempt to divert a plane to Cuba. So, so, just so out Cuba the- is the place to <laughs> go. Cuba is the fucking place to go. If, also, you're, if you're jacking a plane. Yeah. If you're an airline or a government, <laughs> maybe just let people fly to Cuba. Right. Yeah, that might have been an option. Um, you know, there's a number of reasons. It's free. Uh, essentially, like you can get a real cheap ticket and then just demand it go to Cuba because you've got a gun. Well, um, but also it was the 70s. It, it was, was real 70s. cheap to fly. It was cheap anyway. to do everything. It was the golden age. Mm. And you could smoke on airplanes. And you could smoke. Everybody's smoking. the Like 100% <laughs> of the people involved in all of these hijackings are smoking the entire time. <laughs> that is something we have to keep in mind. Um, so, yeah, it Cuba becomes like the motherfucking place to go if yeah. you're hijacking a plane and the reason to hijack a plane. So... Yeah. Hmm. How Cuba's got like a pretty decent airport setup, right? Like, because otherwise, I could see this being a problem. For um, them. I haven't ever heard that it was a problem. I think they. Uh, I don't know much about the Cuba Cuban airport. I'm just um, imagining being an air it. traffic controller in Cuba and like the nightmare of like, oh god, we uh, got another one. <laughs> Not a lot of other traffic into Cuba. I don't no. think in this period of time. Um, so I just have one more question though. Yeah. What did Cuba do with the planes afterwards? Did they just give we're, them back? We're getting to that. Oh, oh good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We're getting to that. <laughs> So the reasons why people would hijack, skyjack planes and take them to Cuba were varied. Everybody had like a different purpose behind it. Um, But Fidel Castro kind of helped um, make his country a more desirable destination by letting everyone in the world know that Cuba just kind of would take in anybody who stole a plane. Like if you steal a plane, you can land in Cuba and live here was like (laughs) essentially what he told everybody. Um, And there were a lot of ways in which he benefited from the situation. For one thing, it was good propaganda. All these like people leaving the decadent West, like traveled uh, to this socialist paradise of Cuba. Um, But more than anything, it meant hard currency for Castro. See, airlines had to pay to get their planes returned. And eventually Cuba settled on a standard fee of $7,500 per plane. So every time a plane got skyjacked, they got a pile of cash to return it. Um, Yeah. So that's that's their little industry develops. I mean, it makes a lot of money off of this. You build your own commercial airline one plane at a time. But I guess that works. And Mm -hmm. just to crunch the numbers here for a second, you said so 
there was uh, about 120 or so. Well, no, about like 130 or something like that. Play uh, trips to Cuba out of that just, 170. Just yeah. Cuba. Yeah. Okay. So that's not bad money. That's, that's, no, that's that not bad money. Up. That adds up. Yeah. <laughs> I do it for a living. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Now, uh, a number of people. Um, there were a lot of reasons people skyjacked planes for Cuba, including like some folks were just kind of mentally ill and decided <laughs> to do it. Um, other folks chose Castro's capital because they were true believers in communism. Uh, they convinced themselves that they would be greeted as revolutionary heroes if they successfully got a ransom from you know some government and took it to Cuba. One skyjacker recalled thinking at the start of his endeavor, in a few hours it would be the dawn in a new world. I was about to enter paradise. Cuba was creating a true democracy, a place where everyone was equal, where violence against blacks and justice and racism were things of the past. I had come to Cuba to feel freedom at least once." There are a number of non-white people who skyjack planes to Cuba because they're just kind of like, fuck this bullshit in the United mm. States in the 70s. I'm going to Cuba. Well, um, there's a lot of, in the black liberation struggle. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who get broken out of jail and get to Cuba by mm-hmm. one way or another. So Better place than jail. Mm-hmm. That's what people say. Um, yeah. So the reality of the situation, um, I don't know, it differed for everybody, but it was less rosy than a lot of skyjackers had anticipated. Um, For one thing, just as a general rule, governments that put a lot of value on law and order don't like people who hijack planes, even if those people believe the same things they do. (laughs) So like, thanks for the plane, we get $75,000 out of it, but... $7,500. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh right, I but forgot it was the seventies. Seventy five hundred was was a plan's worth. It's still like at some point two hundred thousand dollars or something. Right. It's a but, lot. But now that you brought us this plane, mm-hmm. you're also the kind of person who steals planes by pointing guns and bombs at them. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> we don't really trust you, is what we're saying. Yeah. You're uh, the kind uh, of person who's not one of our highly trained doctors in our yeah. very good medical yeah. system. Yeah. Um, So according to Wired, quote, Castro had little but disdain for the hijackers themselves, whom he considered undesirable malcontents. After landing at Jose Marti, which I guess is the airport, Mm -hmm. hijackers were whisked away to an imposing Spanish citadel that served as the headquarters of G2, Cuba's secret police. There they were interrogated for weeks on end, accused of working for the CIA, despite all evidence to the contrary. The lucky ones were then sent to live at Casa de Transitos, the hijackers' house, a (laughs) decrept dormitory in southern Havana, where each American was allocated 60 square feet of living space. The two-story building eventually held as many as 60 hijackers oh. who were forced to subsist on monthly stipends of 40 pesos each. Oh. Skyjackers who rubbed their G2 interrogators the wrong way, meanwhile, were dispatched to squalid sugar harvesting camps where conditions were rarely better than nightmarish. At these tropical gulags, inmates were punished with machete blows, political agitators were publicly executed, and captured escapees were dragged across razor-sharp stalks of sugarcane until their flesh was stripped away. One American hijacker was beaten so badly by prison guards that he lost an I, another hanged himself in his cell. So it's like, wow, kind of a mixed bag. Bummer. Yeah, he stole a whole plane just for that. Because mm-hmm. sixteen feet of living space—that's that's two feet mm-hmm. by eight feet. That's like a cot. Back to talking about career trajectories of hijackers. You really got to have an end goal in yeah, mind. Better, the hijacking itself mm-mm. is not cannot be the end goal. Better no. to be the broker who's arranging the transfer of the planes back to their airlines. That's a good gig. That's that a good gig. Like a growth industry. Maybe it it's also funny that a communist country would take the people who put in the hard labor and, you know, expropriate that value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know. All governments are kind of the same when you well, get to it. Yeah. On the other hand, depending on where you lived before, at least you're warm now. 
Yeah, you're warm now. Better beaches. You yeah. assume it works out for some of them, right? Like, there's got to be some people that, like, get in good with the G2 folks, and I don't know. I assume it worked out for some people, but it's it's a rough it's a yeah. rough situation for most of them. Uh, now, the stories that kind of came out about how not ideal it was to become a skyjacker and go to Cuba didn't stop people from jacking. One of the jackers was a 34-year-old Cuban exile who simply couldn't live any longer without the taste of his mother's frijoles. He'd apparently like left as a kid and like the yeah, and like wanted his mom's soup, which is I hope he got a lot more soup. I don't know. He missed his mom. He missed his so mom. So he had to steal a plane. So he had to steal a plane. You really <laughs> That was, that was a decision you can make because there were essentially no risks. In, it like it was not dangerous to hijack a plane. At also, this of time. I don't know what their relationship was like, but mm. after that, he and his mom got along pretty good. You would have to hope right? so, right? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, another was a sociology student who wanted to study communism. Uh, and of course, there were non-Cuba-related jackings. A uh, 28-year-old trust fund kid uh, hijacked a Delta Airlines flight while dressed as a cowboy. Uh, he received $50,000 and parachuted out. Uh, he horribly injured himself upon landing and was immediately caught. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, trust fund kid. Yeah. Could have just gone to Cuba, buddy. <laughs> so skyjackings represented a problem for the airline industry, but not really a big one. Uh, most skyjackings would cost the airline between 20 and $30,000. And since passengers were basically never harmed, like, there wasn't really a lot of desire among, like, the people buying flights for it to be stopped. Like, it wasn't... Wasn't a horrible issue for it's most. Just the people. cost of doing business. Yeah, they got a detour to Cuba. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. Like a skyjacking meant like some excitement for everybody on the plane. You might get a free night in Havana or something. You know, <laughs> I assume it wasn't great for everybody, but it wasn't like it wasn't a big problem. And again, people basically never got hurt. Uh, proposals were made to add X-rays to airports and begin scanning passengers, but this was shot down as an unreasonable violation. Um, basically, like airlines were like, people will never submit to this. Unfortunately. We never did. And we never Nobody ever, ever did. changed yeah. their mind about that. So kind of one by one, all of the airlines like looked at this problem of hijackings every year, many, many of them, and were like, I guess we'll just kind of le- write it out. Sure. <laughs> like, fuck it. Yeah. I mean, what's the worst outcome you can imagine from people hijacking <laughs> planes? It's fine. No one's gonna like fly them into buildings. <laughs> Uh, so the federal government had a little bit more on the line and was kind of less willing to let this keep happening, being the federal government. Uh, all these jackings were an international embarrassment, uh, and they also helped fund, because a lot of times people would like, the jackers would ransom, you know, the passengers and stuff. Uh, and this funded terrorist organizations around the world, uh, uh, including particularly a lot of, like, Palestinian liberation organizations yep. and yep. stuff. So that was a real issue for the uh, the State Department um, and a real issue for the U.S. government. And in 1968, a Senate hearing was held on the matter. Irving Ripp, who represented the FAA, told the assembled congressman, it's an impossible problem short of searching every passenger. If you've got a man aboard that wants to go to Havana and he has got a gun, that's all he needs. And there's no way to figure out that he has that gun. <laughs> no. And certainly wouldn't search every single passenger before yeah. they boarded a plane. That would be madness. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's actually the no quote I'm about to read. Oh, yes. <laughs> quote. Uh, from Wired. Senator George Smathers of Florida countered Rip's gloom by raising the possibility of using metal detectors or x-ray machines to screen all passengers. Preposterous. (laughs) He noted that these relatively new technologies were already in place at several maximum security prisons and sensitive military facilities where they were performing admirably. I see no reason why similar devices couldn't be installed at airport check-in gates to determine whether passengers are carrying guns or other weapons just prior to implaning, Smathers said. But Rip dismissed the senator's suggestion as certain to have a bad psychological effect on passengers. It would scare the pants off people. Plus, people would complain about invasion of privacy. 
No one made any further inquiries about electronic yeah, screening. Look, no that one was is, the end of it. No <laughs> one is going to fly yeah. if you someone asks you if you have guns yeah. before you get if on a plane. If we take a single solitary action to make sure people aren't carrying whatever gun they want onto a plane, like people will not fly it anymore. It will ruin the industry, and I think history has borne that uh, out. I, that, I, I won't get on a plane without my Scorpion machine pistol. You know that. Occasionally, I think about how people believe in this idea of the forward progress march of history. Mm-hmm. And this is a solid indication that we have headed dead back. No, because they were right in the seventies, <laughs> by God. Um, so two about weeks everything. Yeah. about absolutely everything, <laughs> especially <laughs> cigarettes <laughs> and cocaine, which is mm-hmm. not addictive. I hear it's not addictive. <laughs> mixes well with cigarettes in a way that again, Absolutely not addictive. And That's what everyone when says you're about high on cocaine coke and cigarettes and smoking. Mm-hmm. You know it feels really good. Goddamn near everything. A plane. <laughs> <laughs> Hijacking a plane. Yeah, really <laughs> gripping tightly the handle of a scorpion machine pistol as you scream wildly the word Havana over and over again to the flight attendant. <laughs> I assume you have a ponytail. Yeah, oh, yeah. huge. Oh lapels. yeah, and a Just fucking enormous lapel. a leather vest like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Oh, such a leather vest. I want so, a gold medallion that I could use as a coaster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Medallions where you keep the extra bullets, too. It's like a Pez <laughs> thing. So uh, two weeks after this Senate inquiry, a forklift operator named Oren Richards hijacks a Delta Airlines flight. Upgrade uh, from a forklift. Yep, upgrade from a forklift. Uh, he springs his trap over West Virginia, pulling a gun on the first man he meets in the aisle after leaving a seat. Uh, and this, the first man he met in the aisle after leaving a seat wound up wound up being a sitting senator from Mississippi who'd like oh, been at that. Yeah. yeah. So the whole situation got resolved peacefully in Miami, but it spooked the federal government, who suddenly realized that elected officials could very easily be skyjacked over like political issues and like uh we should probably head this motherfucker off at the pass right i mean <laughs> this might not end well for us i suppose <laughs> yeah uh so the state department <laughs> like again no one knew what to do because you couldn't search people look it's the air there's yeah. no laws <laughs> the state department actually seriously proposed offering all americans free one-way trips to cuba in order to stop it like, there was Again, like, what if we just say any American can go to Cuba for free once? Yeah. The forward march of history is a lie yeah. because there was a point where we all could have just taken a free trip well, to Cuba. Castro actually said no to that. He was oh. like, I don't want the U.S. just offloading all their, you know, their fucking shitty people on I've me. never had any reason to critique yeah. anything Fidel Castro has done. Mm-hmm. But right now... This all changed. This is this is the first thing problematic that I'm aware of. I mean, okay, stripping people's flesh off by dragging them over sugar cane—that was not great either. A little bit of that. A little bit of that. I mean, if if you got sugar cane, you're going to strip people's flesh. And and if you got to strip off people's flesh, you might as well use sugar cane. Exactly. I've always said that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's basically the same thing that like those fancy salons do when they make they use the sugar Mm. to make the thing for depilating hair. Sure, but but it's your musculature off of your skeleton. Okay, well (laughs) we don't need to be like you know nobody's perfect is is kind of the point here, and that's really what we're talking about um, today. So yeah, Castro's like, no, I'm not going to just take all of the Americans who want to go to Cuba think they might like Cuba. Um, that's there's not, an alternate that's timeline where Cuba becomes do. the absolute like Cuba mm-hmm. becomes Silicon Valley because mm-hmm. they went with that plan. Could it could have could have been pretty sweet actually, right? Um, yeah. So he refuses to accept them. Uh, so the FAA forms a special anti-jacking task force instead, um, and they're. <laughs> I don't understand. And why they you're are laughing. deeply, yeah, deeply confused about what their job is yeah. from the get go. So, uh, they, for reasons I will never understand, they solicit 
American citizens for suggestions on how to solve the problem, and they're immediately buried in just awful, awful suggestions, <laughs> like thousands of letters that are all stupid as shit, uh, including installing trapdoors outside cockpits, arming yes. stewardesses with tranquilizer darts, yes. making passengers wear boxing gloves so that they couldn't grip guns, yes. and playing the Cuban national anthem before takeoff and arresting anyone who knew the lyrics. I mean, I have no problem with that last one. That sounds just unimpeachable as a strategy. I yeah. personally think boxing gloves would be fantastic. That would be I would love very to see funny. People trying yeah. to eat their airplane. I'm also just mm-hmm. now imagining the movie Airplane, mm-hmm. but everyone is wearing boxing gloves yeah. the entire time, and okay. what a bit that would be. Yeah, it would make it <laughs> quite funny. The chain. Well, they would have to rework some scenes, but they wouldn't know. fly to Cuba. That woman would still be hysterical in the lineup waiting for it. To- so uh, not all of the suggestions were immediately rejected by the government. The most popular one among the FAA was the idea that they could just build a scale mock replica of the airport in Cuba in South Florida so that they could trick skyjackers into thinking they'd reach yes. Havana. Um, and, but, then, and right next to where they staged the moon landing. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, which which of course is in, they, they put in Florida. That's right. where you put your fake moon. There's mm-hmm. such similar... Anyway, um, yeah, so the the FAA was like, seriously, like, what if we just build a fake airport? But then they decided it would be too expensive. Wow. So the airlines, meanwhile, just decided to make, like, policy be to completely comply with skyjackers mm-hmm. uh, in all ways. They actually banned employees from taking any action whatsoever to, sco- to stop a skyjacker. Yeah, right. It's um, like if you work in a retail store, yes. what, the policy about shoplifting. Yes. Yeah. And this actually winds up having an impact on why 9-11 happens the way it does. Because at that time... There had not been like a plane hijacking where that sort of thing had been done. And the, right. the, the wisdom was still, you know, in 2001, oh, they're going to ransom us or take us right. somewhere. They're going to fly us somewhere like they want to get money or something. Um, so that's part of why people didn't really fight back until they started. You know, that last plane right. kind of realized what was happening. I, <sighs> yeah, on it's the a other bummer. hand, no one was like they're not using a gun they <laughs> well, you couldn't, you know, they put some security measures by, in, by 2001. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you that you could detector. no longer do the fish called Wanda and just flip yeah. the gun around. But the metal it did detector. used to be that easy as, right. it, as it is. Like you just would carry a gun onto a plane. Right. Um, so, so I know Osama bin Laden ruined it for everybody. He really did. Right. No. That that's his one. No. Okay. <laughs> no. Nope. Um, Only so, mistake. He, nope. No. <laughs> So the airlines, yeah, again, decide like everybody's just got to do whatever the the, the hijackers say. Uh, So all plane cockpits uh, in the United States were for a period of time equipped with charts of the Caribbean Sea, regardless of the flight's destination, because it was just known like you might have to fly to Cuba. Like any flight in the country, you might wind up going to Cuba. Just accessorize (laughs) that a little bit. You get like some palm trees and everybody's got like some coconut drinks. Yeah, you could keep a special set of like, yeah, rum, like Cuba. Well, probably not Cuba Libres, because those won't go over well once you're in cuba no um yeah anyway uh so yeah skyjacking it was a viral meme right for eight years or so and really the year in which it hit its height was 1969 yeah 11 u.s flights were commandeered in the first six weeks of the year alone everyone Um, was really excited by the number yeah they really were they they wanted to make it count uh one plane was taken by a released mental patient uh and his three-year-old son which wait? Which one okay. held the gun? I, I'm sure it's I, a less fun story than it is I, when you summarize I it like think, that. I think, I think saying that a plane was hijacked by anyone and their three year old son mm-hmm. maybe gives the three year old son too much credit. I don't know. Have you met most three year olds yeah. in the midst of a tantrum? 
they could totally hijack a plane. Because also, that sounds like a movie. That sounds like a movie with Tom Hanks in the 80s, where, like, yeah. you know, he gets out of the mental institution and, like, his kid wants to, like, teach him a lesson about. It you would know, have had Arnold Schwarzenegger in the early 90s. I don't know. There, you, could, you could make a fun, feel good movie about it. Then he falls in love with the stewardess. Right. Yeah. Right. And then they go to Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. Then they go to Cuba um, and help ignite a communist worldwide revolution, like yep. Tom Hanks has always wanted to do. So, uh, yeah, one plane in 1969 was uh, diverted by a college student who was armed with bug spray. So you didn't really have to be all that well equipped. I'm, I'm sorry. Armed with bugs. I think he did like a flamethrower thing, but I'm not okay. really sure. Um, and another was commandeered by a retired Green Beret whose plan was specifically to beat Castro to death with his fists. Oh, that's new. So this was uh, yeah. this is 1969. Yes. So this was before any of the Rambo movies would have given him that idea. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think the best cool. part of that this idea he had on his own. <laughs> I think the best part of that is that you've already described what happened once people landed in Cuba. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, speaking of landing in Cuba, you know what Cuba loves? Rum. Cigars. Yes. yes. Not America. But broader than that, Cuba, if anyone knows anything Music? about them, it's that they love products and services. Oh. Huge fans of corporations I, and Several of the things that I've just listed are, in fact, mm -hmm. products, products and, and services. services. There might be an ad for rum or for cigars or for having a lot of doctors, like a really mm -hmm. tremendous amount of doctors. And really good hurricane response. And just very good hurricane good response. Hurricane. It could be an ad for any of those things. Um, so here we go. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, 
this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. All right, we're back. So um, in this period of time, there was exactly one reasonable person who worked in the entire U.S. government, uh, and he was a guy named John Daly. He was the FAA's chief psychologist, and he decided that we should probably do something about this problem, and the thing that we should do, rather than search every passenger or all that stuff, was try to analyze like all of the different hijackings in the past, and particularly all of the people who had committed them, to try and determine if there were certain key behaviors that might, like, give away the fact that someone oh, so was planning to hijack it. a plane. Yeah, you're going to yeah. pre-crime it. Uh, so his research convinced him that all these people d- had done things that had marked them out as potential hijackers while they were checking in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these behaviors weren't uniform, but Daly believed that if you trained airline employees to watch for a certain range of sp- suspicious behaviors and then search the people who seemed like might be a plane hijacker, the fact that some of these folks would be innocent wouldn't piss anybody off too much if it meant less skyjacking. So you like repeatedly checking your gun and asking yeah. if anyone knew how to get to Cuba. Instead <laughs> of saying, that guy's repeatedly checking his gun, better better let him get on this plane, you say, that guy's repeatedly checking his gun. I'm going to ask him if he plans to hijack the plane. <laughs> but yeah. not prevent him from bringing the gun onto the plane. Well, they tried to. That would be um, communism. That would be communism. So it actually worked really well. Um, it, mainly it was just the fact that there was now a possibility of being searched by the law before a flight that scared off most hijackers. And that's all it took. And that's, that's really why, all and, it took. And now the episode's yeah. over. That was that was great. Thanks. There was actually, End of terrorism There forever. were reports from airports around the country in this period of time for weeks after these plant, like after airports started doing this, of like airport security finding guns and knives and bombs stashed in the bushes outside. Oh, because shit, guys, they're going to search and, for these. Like, realized and oh, dumped it outside. Oh, we yeah. got to hide it in the bushes. They're never going to let us take this to Cuba. Yeah. 
uh, by 1970, the skyjacking epidemic was mostly over. So it really worked. This is part of why, like, D.B. Cooper, that guy in 71, who I dropped right, the plane, right, part right. of why it was so noteworthy is that, like, they'd really gotten a handle on hijacking for the most part. And then he managed, he does a jacking. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, but this, like, th- it, it turns out, like, a lot of people were just hijacking planes because there was literally no barrier to hijacking planes. I, I gotta say, mm-hmm. if we were playing Minecraft... And you were able to hijack planes, and there was nothing in the game to prevent you from hijacking planes. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people playing Minecraft would hijack a plane. I think a lot of people would in Minecraft hijack a plane, uh, which is not a thing that anyone in the real world nobody would should ever do. do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, by 1970, they'd kind of gotten a handle on on the jackings in the sky. Now, up to this point, uh, <laughs> I've mostly focused on U.S. skyjackings because they were very silly. But there were skyjackings all around the world. And a lot of them were like, like I was saying earlier, like a lot of different, this is kind of like the height of of kind of international solidarity with a lot of like Palestinian liberation movements. So there sure, were a lot yeah, of different yeah. groups kind of allied with different Palestinian groups who would do it to like help fund them and stuff. And this was a big deal. It, it happened in the U.S., but also like all around the world. Um, and it was, you know, a, a thing that other groups would do to kind of fund their activities or to make political points. Um, and this kind of brings because me to the story Friday, of one fun. of the most successful and interesting jackings in all of Sky history. Um, <laughs> the story of the Japanese Red Army. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot to this story. This is this is a fun one. This is one of the funnest stories in all of terrorism. I... Um and there's a lot of fun. There's to be a lot had of fun stories in terrorism. When you're doing a terrorism, it's really just laughs all the way down. Um, but this is <laughs> oh, a particularly all the good way way. down. Oh yeah, like that, the, like, that, that like that falling man on nine. Okay. <laughs> nope. Um. So to tell this story, uh, we have to talk a bit about Japan <laughs> in the 1960s. Uh, Japan was just 15 years out of World War II at the start of the decade, and thus only 15 years out of like literally centuries of rule by emperors and shogun. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like They didn't have a lot of experience with democracy. It had not been an open society. Right. Um, and, you know, then there's a bunch of nukes going off, and Douglas MacArthur is in charge for like five years. That, uh, that Nothing could go wrong with that go at wrong. all. Douglas MacArthur, by the way, a few years later, later would suggest so strenuously that he was fired for it, putting an end to the Korean War by nuking all of China, basically. (laughs) So not... They didn't go with that option, huh? No, no, no. Not a... Not the most even-tempered guy, uh, yeah. but he opens Japan up, uh, and it's his job to like make sure that they democratize and stop being right. authoritarian. Uh, so, like overnight, Japan's a democracy, uh, and people who had once lived or died on the words of a single man suddenly had the right to go and protest the government in the streets. Right. MacArthur also freed all political prisoners in Japanese jails, despite the fact wow. that he himself was like a right-wing radical. Oh, like absolutely. MacArthur's hard right. He frees all of Japan's imprisoned left-wing radicals, including communists. Huh. Um, and this is part of why the Japanese Communist Party during this period of time is kind of known for being more pro-democracy than any right. other party in the country, and very different from like other communist parties in that part of the world at the time. And there's, um, some, there's some very famous authors from uh, from the post-war Japanese period. Uh, uh, Oe, I know, is one of them who, yeah, is like hardline anti-capitalist communist mm-hmm. and also really excited about the post-war constitution. Yeah, um, yeah, like it's a good, really, uh, there's yeah. a lot of cool stuff in it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's one of the reasons MacArthur is such an interesting dude to like look at his because he like he's a big impact on the constitution he's a monster also but like oh. for there's a brief period of time 
where he's like doing what you'd broadly say are the right things. And so the Communist Party in Japan actually goes from about a thousand members pre-war because it was illegal mm -hmm. to one hundred and fifty thousand members by 1950, just okay. five years. Um, another major, major change to Japan was the education system. The new government extended the possibility of higher education to everyone, not just a privileged few. The fact that there were now more students on campus and more possibilities for political involvement led to an explosion in Japanese activist culture. And MacArthur supported this too, under the belief that even left-wing activism on campus would help flush out Japanese instructors who still held lingering nationalist beliefs. So that's oh. kind of why he lets the left rise. Is he's like, so this will flush out the nationalists. Right. he yeah. hates communists. But he's but he hates the guys he was just fighting. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he, and anti-fascism, anti-totalitarian first. Kind of. He was pretty. Mm. He was. It was more. He specifically hated the old Japanese government, and he knew that they really hated the left. And letting these kids march in the street would kind of they're give him a not going to be able to shut up about it. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah well, that's more the reason. Like MacArthur's not doing this because he's a nice dude. No. Yeah. <laughs> And um, and there's there's certainly things to bear that out because you have like Mishima and his Shield Society and there's there's some really wild right wing yeah. uprisings that happen in post war Japan. It turns out people who are just, just irate about the idea turn that, that like a switch. Yeah, right, the emperor can't order everyone to die anymore, and that yeah. is unacceptable. It's the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, so yeah, uh, student self governing associations pop up at campuses across Japan, and they functioned kind of like unions. Mm -hmm. um, giving kids a voice on their campus. Oh, in no. 1948, a bunch of these associations formed up into a national league. Uh, mm -hmm. They called themselves Zengakuren, which is short for All Japan League of Student Self-Government. Now, most of these people were communists, but there's, you know, you know communists. There's a whole lot of different kinds of communists. Yes. It's like Skittles. There's, there's, right. There's, yeah. there's Lenin mm -hmm. and there's... Trotsky. Stalin. Tr at this point, and most of Stalin. Hot young Stalin. Yeah, and yeah. Those are all the kinds that I know. And at this point, you know, 1948, <laughs> even the people who are like Stalinists aren't really Stalinists by what we'd call them. Like, because if you're a Stalinist, then you don't really know most of what Stalin did right. as opposed to being a Stalinist now and denying everything mm -hmm, Stalin did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and he hadn't yeah. done some of that stuff. He had not done all of that stuff. <laughs> Not a lot of it. Did <laughs> By he 48. still yeah. have a goldfish pond? Um, yeah, I think so. Okay. Probably, yeah. So, yeah, these guys started, uh, these these students start protesting. Like, a big one is U.S. bases on Japanese soil. And, like, right. the no-base movement, you'd still see when I was over there, you'd see a bunch of graffiti yeah. for that. Like, that's a big thing. Um, is well, because the, the U.S. military presence in Japan is enormous it's massive it's yes absolutely uh, I, enormous. on okinawa i have a lot of I, a lot of fond memories of driving past past like missile silos that are right. just like in the countryside i have i have great, family who was stationed in okinawa and mm -hmm. my impression is that there's not much to okinawa other than military bases. oh no okinawa fucking rules like there's a bunch yeah. of cool shit on okinawa. well no that's sorry that's what i mean um, but i imagine like the best that the cool shit is like the bases just, are big like right. it's it, it's a it's big and it has a major impact on the local yeah. culture for sure um, but there's a like there's a lot of cool shit going on in sure. Okinawa. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, so they start protesting U.S. bases on Japanese soil, and this is where Douglas MacArthur stops being on board. He wasn't. Aww. He wasn't down. Yeah. It wasn't. But yeah. Why not? So, but won't won't the fascists be upset that? Oh, they won't be upset about that, will they? No. Oh, no. That's no. when MacArthur stops being okay with the students speaking their minds. Oh. Uh, so in 1949, he backs a bill that like the the Japanese government puts out 
that specifically the Ministry of Education pushes introduces this bill that would curtail the right to protest. Uh, so this really pisses off students in Japan who are again able to protest and organize for the first time. Right. And more than two hundred thousand of them take to the streets and shut down universities across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so shocking that the government was forced to backpedal and scrap the bill. But more attempts followed. In 1952, the government tried to pass an anti-subversives bill that was basically Japanese-style McCarthyism. 20,000 students attempted to storm the royal palace, hurling stones at lines of armored riot police who eventually beat them back with such violence that two students died in the fighting. Shit. Yeah, it was a heck of a riot. Uh, so soon, mass street battles become the norm. Uh, the Japanese government's refusal to do anything as a result of these protests caused the formation of a new movement in Japanese politics, the New Left, who believed that electoral politics were hopeless and only revolution could bring, bring progress, um, which doesn't sound like anything that's ever happened Nobody's since. ever come to that conclusion since. Yeah, based nope. on police violence. Yeah. yeah, certainly not. Only happened certainly this not. one time in this one country. Right. Um, yeah, uh, I'm going to quote now from a write-up in the Asia-Pacific Journal. New left street demonstrations steadily escalated into violent clashes resembling medieval battles. The students wore color-coded crash helmets emblazoned with the names of their organizations, carried long fighting poles, and threw stones or firebombs at the police. They confronted squads of riot police wearing medieval-style helmets who battled the students with tall aluminum body shields and police batons, supported by water cannon trucks that sprayed fire hoses of water laced with tear gas at the students. Mm. At the peak of the protest cycle in 1968-69, Japanese authorities suddenly cracked down with mass arrests and prolonged incarcerations of thousands of students. This turned the tide, in, produ- in part by s- producing splits within the new left groups. So there's part of a reason why Japan is kind of so famously disconnected from like uh, politics and, and people don't like do shit like this anymore to a, a large extent. they and arrested it's everybody. Because yeah, they arrested and beat and right. yeah. The color-coded crash everybody. helmet sounded real cool, That though. does sound cool. And the long sticks. Long sticks. Mm-hmm. And the hurling. Okay. So by the early 1970s, the Zengakuren, which are again these like student self-governing organizations, mm-hmm. it started turning away from the Japanese Communist Party and MAS, largely so that they could have a chance of influencing electoral politics. Mm-hmm, so like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they decide they don't want to be they're not new left, right? They want to try and actually like make things happen at the ballot box and the radical left is increasingly being like that's bullshit. It's all about fighting cops in the streets and right. the, the 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 kind of more moderate people are like, but that has horrible consequences and I don't want to do it. Mm. Um This sounds like a summary of the entire 70s after 1968. Yep, yep, so it's a thing that keeps happening. Yep. So, uh, yeah, the the larger number of moderate liberals broke away from the radical left and stopped protesting, uh, and the radical left did what the radical left nearly always does and devoured itself I over was issues about of to doctrine. Say yeah. Is, this a, yeah. Yes. is this specific to Japan, or is this just... This, is, like this could be your, literally any it, movement that's mm-hmm. ever happened in and also America, any yeah, movement or in the world. That's sorry. ever happened in the 1970s, in the 70s after yeah. 1968 occurred. It's the thing that keeps happening, that's why the Earth will soon be an uninhabitable... Anyway... Communist radicals in Japan decided that nonviolent resistance was no longer practical. Japanese riot police were too good at their jobs, and less committed members of the left were no longer trustworthy allies. The communist chunks of the left began to split between those who wanted to continue the old methods of protest and propaganda, and those who wanted to actually wage global war against capitalism. And I mean a literal war in that sense. Now, these types wound up in a number of different groups, the most influential of which came to eventually be known as the Japanese Red Army. Now, I... My understanding from the latter 20th century is anytime that something's called the Red Army, Mm -hmm. 
everything is good from there on yes. out. Red Army Faction, Red all Army good, Faction. Yeah, this is the, the Red Army Faction. Red Guards, yeah. those are all good. Red Guards are great. Never a problem. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. So Japanese Red Army, mm-hmm. everything is the, coming the, up roses. The Soviet Red Army, famously, no war crimes committed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's why the Polish people the were so happy with. Because it has red. Anyway, in. yes. So it is the most common. I'm going to quote now from a fascinating write-up in Unseen Japan uh, that really goes into these guys. And they do actually a great multi-part essay on the whole history of the Japanese Red Army that's very cool. The leader and ideological master of the newly minted Red Army faction was one Shiomi Takaya, an avowed Trotskyite for whom a violent international revolution was the goal. In Shiomi's eyes, any attempt at coexistence with the imperialist West, as was then being professed by Soviet Premier Khrushchev following his shocking repudiation of Stalinism, were a corruption of true Marxism. World mm. revolution recall, required unflinching de- uh, required unflinching action. Imperialism needed to be purged from the world, and Japan was the place to start. If they joined hands with other revolutionary forces in Cuba, Palestine, Korea, and Vietnam, soon the entire world might glow red. The struggle first took the form of internecine battles within their parent organization, the Communist League. Hostages were taken, and the headquarters stormed. One Red Army soldier died after he slipped and fell from a high window while escaping being held hostage at the League headquarters at Nihon University. Death, Death had become a part of the Red Army mythos from its very first days. So... So this is yeah. they're they're taking hostages from their own side. in their own headquarters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how it's, it's gonna end go, well? <laughs> how can you go and fight the capitalists if you cannot even properly purge your own ranks? Exactly. That's true. I mean, yeah. If there's one, if you're thing, gonna clean the house, you got to clean your closet oh, first. Oh, and this is a story with a real purgy ending. Y'all oh, are gonna enjoy good. this. So good. the Red Army differed from many of its fellow lefties by stating openly their desire to commit violent actions against the state. Their propaganda heavily cited Leon Trotsky to make the case that violent tactics would help spark a worldwide socialist revolution, mm-hmm. which would inspire a global revolutionary army to rise up in armed revolt with bombs and guns. This, this is the part that I always find delightful mm-hmm. is you have all of these guys throughout history who keep being like, so we're going to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And then when we do this thing, a global army is going to materialize. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the thing we want is going to happen. I mean, it worked Be- that yeah. one time in Russia. As opposed for like, hey, guys, what if we, all, put we it might to you that to wear a mask for like four weeks and it basically being the seat of a civil war. (laughs) Yeah. Like if there's one thing that seems to be true, it's doing one thing doesn't lead to unified action Mm -hmm. across the planet. If there's one people thing people hate, it's doing things. (laughs) They really do. (laughs) They They don't like it. Um, And this was before Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. This is before. Yeah. So you had a chance, but still wasn't great. So, yeah, they started publicizing this. The Red Army faction starts publicizing their desire to spark a global armed socialist revolution before they even hold their first meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, this created a lot of buzz around the new organization. Where do you publicize that, by the way? Is that like, yeah, like pamphlets like, and shit? OK, I'm just yeah. wondering if that's like the back page of the newspaper and like no. the help wanted ads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, revolution wanted. Uh, yeah. Um, We're going to so, yeah, kill a lot of people. <laughs> there's a lot of lot of buzz around them, as this quote from an article in the Journal of Asian Studies by Patricia Steinoff makes clear. The organization's first public meeting, held at a public hall in Tokyo in early September 1969, featured a massive display of state authority. In addition to the ring of uniformed police surrounding the building, plainclothes police photographed the 300 people who entered, and more police stood around the back of the hall watching. On stage... 
gonna make you maybe a little bit less excited about openly calling for violent insurrection against oh no they love this shit they love this shit they all made speeches wearing like ski masks and stuff so they couldn't be identified okay no you're right um and they didn't get arrested that day because it's it's not it wasn't illegal to say that stuff but everyone knew they were saying we're going to break the law very soon Uh um and so yeah uh and they're all masked up and it's pretty good pretty good propaganda coup because people hadn't done anything like that at that point Yeah. So uh, the various cells of the Red Army ran a handful of mass gatherings protesting U.S. bases and that sort of thing. But the fiery young men and women in the Red Army faction proved to have very little patience for such things. They moved almost immediately to hijacking vehicles, bombing police stations and robbing banks. Once they had a few months of this under their belt, the leadership cadres of different Red Army chapters decided to attempt to spark uprisings in three different cities. In keeping with their international revolution obsession, they timed this with the Days of Rage planned by the Weathermen and a Black Panther rally in Chicago, which is... I mean... Yeah, it's not bad, not necessarily a bad I idea. I think yeah. that news cycle, you're gonna, you know, mm-hmm. you're gonna dominate. You're gonna dominate in the news cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. It said 1968. If, it was a very yeah. busy year. It was a year to try that sort of thing. You mm-hmm. gotta give them that. So I'm gonna quote from Patricia Steinoff again. Uh, Sekigun, which is like, was what, like the Red Army faction's Japanese name, uh, organized its fall uprisings with only slightly more secrecy than it would have used for a public demonstration. Prior publicity about the events prompted a series of riot police raids on university campuses where local Sekigun chapters were stockpiling poles and iron pipes for street fighting and glass bottles for making Molotov cocktails. The Osaka and Kyoto raids involved over 2,000 riot police and resulted in nearly 100 arrests and 64 indictments. These raids contributed directly to a huge increase in student weaponry confiscated by police in the second half of 1969. In the end, the uprisings turned out to be relatively minor skirmishes in which Sekigun members ran around the streets throwing firebombs at police stations. <laughs> One area of Sekigun innovation, weaponry, was handled secretly from the beginning. Sekigun threatened publicly to use more powerful weapons, but the specific details were th- restricted to those directly involved. A small Sekigun research and development group composed of physics, chemistry, and medical students quickly invented a hand grenade made by packing dynamite, pachinko balls, and a fuse into round metal containers in which Peace brand cigarettes are sold. Soon after, a more powerful hand grenade was devised using a length of iron pipe as the casing. Both weapons were designed to be thrown with a lit fuse. Small groups of Sekigun members were taught the new technology and manufactured the bombs as a cottage industry. So that's wow. neat. Yeah, these, they, they, they get really going. So, and they, I like that there's a specific brand of cigarettes mm. where they're like, this is this is the grenade brand. They called them peace bombs. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did. And if I don't know if you don't, this won't mean much if you don't know a lot about Japan. But if you know Japan, the fact that their grenades had pachinko balls in them is the most Japanese thing they could have <laughs> possibly done. Like that's um, it's uh. It's like what it like you know what old people in America do mm. when they go to gamble in Vegas like pachinko's that but like countrywide it's just like a it's like a it's like a like a, a, a I don't know how to describe it if bingo. you've never seen people play pachinko yeah it's kind of like bingo um it's kind of like bingo and they use it to make grenades which is very fun that's cute yeah so whatever else you can say about the Japanese red army they didn't at lack chutzpah. Uh, Shiomi, the leader, and his top officers next launched a plan to raid the prime minister's home and kidnap him in the dead of night in order to stop him from meeting with Richard Nixon and finalizing the return of Okinawa to Japan. Uh, This action was disguised as a mass training event in the mountains where members would learn to use explosives during assaults. Now, Sorry, they they disguised their plan to kidnap the prime minister as we, an organization that has repeatedly said that we are going to violently overthrow the government— are yeah. going to get all our people together up in the mountains yeah. to practice making bombs. Yes. 
that's our cover have, have, story. Have you noted an error in, in their thinking? A I, tactical shortcoming, perhaps? I have not, but I'm yeah. excited to see how it goes. And everyone yeah. was like, you should go do that. That seems like a really good plan. I don't, that way you'll be out of the way during the what, time. And, and this was in 1969? 69, I think, I, yeah. I can't imagine that less than, you know, less than 30 years out from World War II, the Japanese government is going to have any problem with this whatsoever. Well, you're going to be shocked then because they send hundreds of riot police to bust their really? their explosives training drill huh, in the mountains. Why? Um, <laughs> and enough, uh, enough of the group gets arrested at this point that the Red Army goes underground. Uh, their founder himself got arrested and he lost control of the movement shortly thereafter. Uh, and I'm going to continue quoting from that write-up in Unseen Japan here. Ironically, the discovered materials reveal that the Red Army faction had functioned on, hierarch on a hierarchical structure that was anything but revolutionary. Those from the most elite universities, such as Tokyo or Meiji, were selected for the highest level of authority. Secondary authority went to those from major public universities, with the next level being local establishments. Those oh. without a college education or those who were in vocational school or high school were the grunts of the organization. So This is like such typical... like. Yeah. Yeah. Business firm company man mm -hmm. bullshit. Like, I don't know, you went to a state school. So you get to But for violent mm -hmm. communist insurrection. And you can tell that like the people who went to those good schools are the ones capable of making the really important good decisions, like to disguise kidnapping the prime minister as a an illegal bomb building party. Look, <laughs> when I went to my elite university, we did an entire class and how the prime minister doesn't care if you say you're going to make bombs for a massive insurrection. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. Now you did go to Brown. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm just going to put out there considering that you went to a fancier college than I went to. I get to be in charge of the communist insurrection and you have to be a lieutenant. I get to be no, a grunt because I dropped out of college. <laughs> but you definitely recount to me mm -hmm. way more ridiculous conversations with people you went to college with as though they were normal. I, I'm sure that's true. And I am equally sure that I have been so broken by higher education that I don't know which conversations you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Good country and system. <laughs> We all So uh, as time went on, the Red Army drew in smaller and smaller numbers of very committed communists. Those who were left after the disastrous raid attempt were desperate to carry off something big and successful to wash away the tarnish of defeat. So they launched another series of bank robberies. And these weren't yeah. the haphazard affairs from earlier in their history, but actually well-planned actions whose perpetrators would like switch multiple train lines as they fled and disappear into these networks of safe houses. Uh, they they, 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 they kind of like stuck the landing after a real bad, real bad... I don't know. I don't know enough about gymnastics. The Red Army kept a careful watch on the police to know whenever the law caught onto one of their properties and they would like became famous for like right as the police were about to raid them, they would like close out their lease and leave and there would just be this spotless apartment behind and they'd get oh, like they got that's the they power got move good at too. shit. Yeah. That's yeah. like if you've if you've seen uh, The Departed, the, mm -hmm. like that's the yeah. the little booties on your shoes at the end of just yeah. like just nailing it. Yeah. Yeah. Like we we're so ready for we you that we cleaned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, the switch in tactics actually enraged most of the imprisoned founders of the group, which saw theft that harmed normal working people as counter-revolutionary. But the remaining I thought you said were it there, was bank robbery. Were there banks that Yeah, insured? but I don't know if their banks were like I don't know anything oh, about Japanese banking. Well, maybe they don't this have is, maybe they don't have the FDIC. Yeah. This is the issue that people had that like that some of the imprisoned founders had. Maybe the imprisoned founders um, should have advocated for the FDIC in Japan and then they they could have been fine. I don't know. 
So the remaining free members of the Red Army saw it more as a question of survival. They used the money to buy samurai swords and pipe bombs and plane tickets for nine men on a March 30th, 1970 flight from Tokyo to Fukuoka. I, I realize to it's Fukuoka. Japan, mm-hmm. but you did just say matter of survival and then move straight to samurai swords and pipe bombs. Yeah. Which, having taught... The, the necessities. Know, having, having taught something about survival mm-hmm. over the course of my life, and I understand that, yeah, you're going out in the woods, first thing you need... Samurai swords and pipe bombs. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how you, how else are you going to start a fire without pipe bombs? That's how you cook a rabbit right yeah. there. <laughs> and are you going to hunt that rabbit without a samurai sword? I thought you were going to hunt it with the pipe bomb. You can hunt anything with whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of hunting. Um, so, yeah, the, so they buy they buy tickets for this flight to Fukuoka. Uh, and as soon as the plane reaches cruising altitude, the members of the Red Army stood up and grabbed the weird tube-like pieces of luggage they'd all stowed under their seats. Uh, <laughs> and they pull out samurai swords and I bombs. I thought they were art students. <laughs> I assumed it was just. Ah, we should oh. really start searching things at what, at least no, one time, one of Robert, these days. It's not a we poster. Should, yeah. Under no circumstances should we search things mm-hmm. because that way lies people, totalitarianism. Yeah, people will get angry. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike these nice yeah. young men with all their tubes. Oh, full let of, me help you with your art really supplies, know. sir. <laughs> so they pull out samurai swords and bombs, and their leader screams to the other passengers, Raise your hands, we're going to North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not what you want to hear in, on a flight. <laughs> so, in in nineteen, this is still nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, yeah, uh, 70, 70. Yeah, I think it's seventy. Is is we're going to North Korea as bad a thing to hear in nineteen seventy as it is in say twenty twenty? It's not a great thing to hear. Okay, yeah, cool. it's not a great thing to hear. Not as bad for sure. Right, like, I think the like the mass starvation and stuff hadn't really because like as Kim bad. number one is yeah. still around at that. Yeah, point. Yeah, this is know? actually kind of like what a lot of North Koreans would call like a golden age sort of period. So it's like not they as... had many tractors. Are any of yeah. these are any <laughs> of these people from Japan part of the Korean diaspora that was in Japan at not the time? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. No, yeah, I, I, but I, I, you know, maybe. Um, but I think these are all like specifically kind of like Japanese middle class and upper middle class kids. Um, So the problem, uh, a problem immediately arose as soon as they announced that the destination was North Korea, which is that the flight didn't have the fuel necessary to reach North Korea. Oh, I mean details. Yeah. (laughs) The pilot pointed this out and he convinced the skyjackers to let him land as scheduled and refueled. Uh, They took this bait, and of course the police had a shitload of people in the tarmac there to meet them. Uh, So there's a bunch of tense conversations, uh, and after like negotiations, they release 23 people from the plane, uh, women, children, and the elderly, and then the flight takes off again. Um, and the pilot starts getting like navigational instructions from a source that's like loudly claiming to be from Pyongyang. Uh, and so he lands the plane again in what is supposed to look like the North Korean tarmac with like a bunch of soldiers in North Korean uniform. It's It's a fake airport that the Japanese very quickly threw together, which. So after the U S is like, no, we can't. Japan doesn't like an hour. Yeah. (laughs) Which says every, yeah, we could have just had a fake Havana airport in mm-hmm. Miami instead of the TSA. We could Did have anyone that. ever think Honestly, of that? Honestly, we could have had the normal Miami airport look like mm-hmm. the Havana airport. Yeah. Just no one would have Mi- known. Miami lives under Cuba law now. Like yeah. whether or not Cuba wants it. And the US is washing its hands of the matter. Well, let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, so, so Japan builds an airport in an hour. Yeah, they build cool. a fake airport very quickly. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, 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 it it's pretty good, their fake airport, but they forget to cover up the tail markings of a Northwest Airlines flight. Oh. Um, yeah. yeah. So the hijackers... Was, was Northwest Airlines not flying to Pyongyang at no, that time? No, you know, they didn't do a lot of, not a lot of, 
not a lot of Seattle to Pyongyang flights at this point. Uh, you know, it's a big it's a big route now. But yeah. if it had just been Pan Am, everything would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. PWA. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the hijackers realize something is wrong because they're pretty smart cookies. Um, and yeah, they refuse to let anyone leave the plane before the airport officials show them a massive portrait of Kim Il-sung. Like they demand to see, we want to see the biggest fucking portrait of Kim Il-sung you have. Because there's no way that a big picture of the leader of North Korea could possibly exist outside of North Korea. I, I think more what it was is that there's no way that a picture big enough for it to like. I think they all knew that, like, if if we say a big picture of Kim Il-sung, any picture they bring out, if this isn't North Korea, isn't going to be big enough to believably be what North Koreans would say. Oh, you want the big picture? It's going to take, like, six days. You landed on it when you arrived. It's actually a pretty smart thing to do, because they're going to bring out, like, what normal people would think is a big picture, maybe. And anyone who knows anything about North Korea is going to be like, that's not a big picture of Kim Il-sung. I can <laughs> That's see the it, wallet and size. And we're not flying right <laughs> yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's actually a pretty smart uh, move. Um, so, yeah, they, they they realize what's happening and they refuse to let the passengers off. Um, and, yeah, so eventually the Japanese government is forced to compromise with them. And it's actually like kind of an impressive compromise. Like this is the one member of government maybe ever that I'm 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 proud of Japan's vice minister of transportation comes out and he's like what if you let everybody else off and you just take me prisoner and you fly me to North Korea damn um and the hijackers are like sure uh and that's a good thing to do you say a politician yeah putting themselves on the line instead of their constituents yeah Yeah. it happened once well and (laughs) this exact time is the one time it happened i'm so impressed well that in the jonestown congressman yeah yeah well there there's you also said this is the guy who's in charge of of transportation the vice minister for transportation so he's also like this is my job this is my duty yeah yeah that's it's i real i am in charge going down with the ship thing and better yeah and yeah, and to their credit, the Red Army guys are like, oh, yeah, that works great. Yeah. Um, and cool. so, yeah, they all fly to North Korea. Um, Didn't, and, did Harrison Ford do that in that movie where he was the president? Yes, uh, this was actually, he did that during the period of time where there's he was entire, the vice minister of transportation for Japan. That's, that's what entire, I remember yeah. about that movie. There's an entire problematic yeah. anthropology book about this. About Harrison Ford being no. the vice minister of, oh. No. Because that was why so many Japanese planes crashed that. Okay. Um, I said Harrison he's a, Ford. He's not a good pilot. Too. No, he's terrible. He's one of the worst. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the Red Army, uh, they, they succeed. It's a big caper. It's big international news. They jack a plane and take it to North Korea. Um, I do like calling it a caper. It is a good caper. It makes it sound real whimsical. Now, they're pretty much all miserable in North Korea. Is uh, it, so do they not like it there? The, no- <laughs> the North Korean government didn't really want them because, no. again, North Korea doesn't really trust people who hijack planes. Or are from not North Korea. <laughs> or are from not North Korea. Or are from North Korea. <laughs> like, um, and the hijackers, like, a lot of them wound up wanting to return to, like, they, they all kind of, they all wanted initially to return to Japan. Like, their goal was to get arms and military training from the North Korean military and then fly back and launch an insurgency. And uh, North Korea was like, we have all these surplus resources. Mm-hmm which we will give to you to take out of the country. Yes. Have you met us? We're North Korea. We're North Korea. (laughs) We love to do this. Um, So North Korea didn't really like the idea of giving these guys military training, and they keep telling them maybe later. Um, And a bunch of these dudes wound up in Japan decades later, so they gave interviews and stuff, and I found a really funny article about their experiences. Uh, Here's one guy, Abe Kimihiro, discussing their desire to be trained as soldiers and how North Korea responded. 
Quote, military training, military training, always military training. If we didn't get military training, then we had no reason for coming, because one of our motives for coming to North Korea was to receive military training. Our daily routine also included running in the mornings. It felt very good to run in the fresh early morning air, far away from the city. We agreed that we shouldn't just run, but what, but we should run in the spirit of activism. So we shattered the still of the early Korean mornings by shouting our Red Army slogan of, Achieve the uprising, victory in war. However, they were immediately obliged to stop this demonstration. They received a message from the Workers' Party. You can be heard in all the neighboring farms. Wouldn't it be best if you stopped shouting your slogan? So, like, North Korea's like, okay, guys. No, it's early. We get Why it. Why are you yelling? It's early. But maybe not. Um, and they're also, like, the Red Army, again, their whole thing is simultaneous worldwide revolution. And North Korea's got their own thing that's very different from that. Which yeah. is we have a sort of semi-deified... Yeah. Leader, leader and we seek and to be completely autonomous. Right. And yeah, that like Juche stuff. Um, yeah. so, have you considered leaving us the fuck alone? Yeah. Right. We would like. Well, and instead they have all these guys, these fucking college students running in circles yeah. yelling. Shouting. So what they do is they forcibly indoctrinate them for years uh, oh. until they uh, all agree that Juche is the way to go. Fortunately, I have never heard anything bad about the detention facilities in North Korea. And they seem I'm nice. sure it was fine for those guys. Two and of them I were trying, you, killed trying to flee. Um, yeah, well. Yeah, and a couple well, of they'd, they'd stop their training running every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and a couple others made it out under the guise of continuing their revolutionary activity. Uh, four members remained in North Korea where they spent years faking a conversion to Juche philosophy. Um, in 2004, they announced their desire to return to Japan. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's not a perfect story, I, but pretty I, good hijacking. I do like that. You said spent years faking their conversion to Juche philosophy, which mm -hmm. puts them in good company from what I understand with most people in North Korea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, who doesn't fake their commitment to the ideas of Kim Il-sung? I... Could it possibly be products and services? It, it is products and services. Are you sure they don't? Yeah, this, we're entirely supported by the North Korean defense industry here at Behind the say. Bastards. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I don't know. Here's the ads. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. 
thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, we're back. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How good was that? So Delightful. that was, was so all good. very silly, uh, but it was pretty good hijacking. Mm-hmm. And it shows yeah. that, like, there was some steel in the Japanese Red Army, yeah. right? Like, they did some silly shit, but, like, they had color-coded crash helmets had, and long sticks. Yeah, there were some hardcore motherfuckers in that group, uh, and, and they didn't all go to that plane caper. In yeah. fact, there were thousands and thousands of kids left over in Japan. Um, and... Yeah, uh, the Red Army kind of splintered in the absence because, like, the the folks who went to North Korea, a lot of them were like the intellectual leaders of the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and one fragment, the ones who went to good colleges. Yes. Oh. <laughs> one fragment of the remaining movement decided to really commit to the international nature of their political philosophy. They fled to Lebanon, where they met up with members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for people who might not know as much about that history, we're not going to do it nearly the justice that it deserves, but. Uh, you know, Israel became a thing, uh, and kind of the term that's used to refer to that is the the Nakba or mm-hmm. catastrophe by the Palestinian people, um, and that word refers to the for- refers to the forced expulsion of Palestinian people from 
the land that's now the nation of Israel, about 700 to 800,000 people forced out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that had happened about 20 years ago at this point, right? So it's really fresh, and the revolutionary movement dedicated to taking it back is also really fresh. Right. Um, There's no way to talk about this where I won't uh, make a lot of people angry. Um, So... I think I'm just going to say I think what was done to Palestine is a real bummer, uh, and a lot of Palestinians agreed, which is why they formed organizations like the Popular Front, which was a Marxist-Leninist organization in addition to being, you know, liberation and stuff. We'll talk yep. more about them tomorrow because Carlos the Jackal is all real tied up in this shit. Yeah. Um, but the Red Army hear about like you know they they they're paying attention to what's happening in Palestine. It's like a big cause, particularly on the international left at this point, and they're like. Well, if we're going to do this international revolution thing, here's a great place to do it. Like, right. There's a bunch yeah. of other armed people. They all want us to, to go fight for them. Let's go leave Japan and go fight in the Middle East. We're the Japanese Red Army, and that's what we're going to do. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what they do. Uh, the, I cannot see how this plan would go wrong at all. They're actually kind of great at it. Yeah. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, okay. I was actually yeah. going to say, this is, I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm curious to see how this plays out. So they go and like, unlike, you know, North Korea, uh, like the popular front is like, we're fucking trained, you guys. We need, we, like, yeah. the, we're so short on people to go, well, to go pick up guns. Well, because like, <laughs> Palestine, yeah. before, like, before the Nakba, Palestine is like the size of New Jersey. It's like, not giant. It's no. tiny. Yeah. They need, if they, they're, they're going to need people. They need people. Because there's not actually a ton of people there. Yeah. And these communists, you know, the Japanese Red Army guys are all like really smart and really dedicated. And like, they, so they, they wind up in Lebanon and they get trained by the Popular Front. And then they go out and they start, they start doing shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in May of 1972, three Japanese Red Army members open fire with automatic rifles at the Tel Aviv airport. They fire at random, killing 24 people and wounding 76. Shit. So, pr- not, yeah, some pretty serious terrorism right out that fucking gate. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's also, could you imagine how many planes they could have stolen with those? They things? could have stolen, they could have stolen hundreds of planes with those three people, one for it's every bullet. Not, yeah. not great tactics there. Yeah. Maybe I don't think that was their goal. I think it was more of a what we what kind of modern terrorism. Yeah, oh, they're kind of like more. This into that is sort terrible. Of thing. Yeah, they yeah. cause terror instead of yeah. the, Hey, look, we got a plane. And the Japanese Red Army went on to rack up like a pretty terrifying pedigree of violence uh, over the course of like the next few years. They seized foreign embassies. They hijacked aircraft. Uh, they massacred civilians. Kidnapped foreign dignitaries. On several occasions, the government of Japan was forced to release imprisoned Red uh, Brigade or Red Army members in order to free ransom captives. Um, and there's still some Red Army folks out there today, although they're all pretty old at this point uh, mm-hmm. and not super active. Um, but it would be fair to say that the chunk of the Japanese Red Army who went to Lebanon were like pretty terrifying people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we'll get, we'll talk about them more tomorrow. Um, but they're like a big deal in terrorism this time. Like the Japanese Red Army, um, pretty scary motherfuckers outside of Japan. Now, the folks who remained behind in Japan, on the other hand, uh-oh. Were they less committed? No, they were actually more committed, but oh, in a real dumb was way. It, was it well, like, hey, do we get purgy? Yeah, we're gonna get purgy. Oh, this is like the dumbest not, story. Some of these people ascribe to slightly different versions of communism than other versions of these I, people. I'm just, I just not kind even. of imagine it being the B list. Yeah, yeah, you get your B list kids. So they're behind in Japan. And, uh, you know, they, they don't really have a leadership cadre anymore because those people have all gone on to, like, do better things. 
then and, you know and hierarchical communist organizations do fine with leadership vacuums yeah so, like really just great so all of the leadership to the red army in japan kind of falls on one dumb kid named moritsunio uh he was not a great master of communist political theory nor was he an inspiring leader um but he'd done his time and once all of the cool people were arrested or in north korea uh he was just kind of the guy who was was there so he just kind of aged into it like by seniority yeah okay cool i mean also this doesn't bear any similarity to any other dictators or leaders no. that you have ever mentioned ever before this is a thing that only these specific communists did and no other groups or political preferences in history sure. you know there's a lot to be said for standing quietly in the background and just letting everyone else go into yeah. the adventurous things we, we call mm-hmm. it taking a can yeah. yeah. Um, I was speaking about the most recent Kennedy who just lost his election because that's yeah. clearly what he was trying to do. Anyway, not the ones who got shot by Bernie Sanders. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. The Wait, did both of them? Yeah, oh, of I, course. Oh, yeah. oh I, yeah. thought it was, I thought it was just JFK. Sirhan Sirhan, like, same number of letters as Bernie. Are you going to let Bobby... Pull off his face, mm-hmm. Tom Cruise style. It was from Sanders the whole time. Yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah, the the guys, yeah, we're going to tell the dirt. This is probably, honestly, probably the dumbest story in the history of terrorism. Okay. Um, and Boy, that's, wait, that's hard. Because there's a lot of fun videos of, like, militant groups accidentally shooting each other. And, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, after all the smart people left, yeah, Mori Tsuneo winds up on top. Uh, I like now, that. I know, I know it's a different name, but I love that his name is Mori. Yeah, it is kind of funny. <laughs> Um, so the Red Army at this point is the most wanted militant organization in Japan. Um, so Mori kind of has his work cut out for him. And again, they go to the ground, carrying out small-scale bombings and robberies in tiny isolated cells. This limits deme- this limited domestic focus causes a lot of grumbling within the ranks, as did Mori's undeserved dissent. There were vicious struggles within the organization, uh, and those made some members leave and others flee to Lebanon. Mori knew the Red Army needed a new caper to keep their name in the news, so he hooked up with another radical group who'd recently pulled off a daring gun store robbery, which obviously made them valuable because it's not real easy to find guns in Japan. Right. Um, so these kids have guns. Um, and this also like, sounds like the start of a Western, like one of the sad yep, Westerns. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> you, you get a pretty good Quentin Tarantino movie out of this story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they, they hook up with this group that's just robbed a gun store, uh, cause the Red Army's got like money and fame and this group has guns. Mm-hmm. Um, but both different organizations differed significantly in their political beliefs. Um, so, you know, it's not easy mashing them together. So the two groups formed an organization called the United Red Army. So like that's, that's what happens when they merge. Um, and the leader of this organization that had stolen the guns, a woman named Nagata Hiroku becomes like co-leader with this guy, Mori. Um, so Nagata, uh, who was just about as competent as Mori, knew that the right first move once she was in power was to order the brutal executions of two former members of her organization who'd chosen to desert. Uh, and desert is a word here that means like go back to college. <laughs> so they were like dragged out of their dormitories and strangled to death brutally by men and women who'd once been their best friends. Uh, then they were buried in shallow graves outside of town. Um, oh. Now, when Maury hears about this, Power move. he gets jealous because he'd always been too much I'm of a coward. Jealous yeah, is not the word I expected. Okay, no, if your organization joins with my organization and I go, oh, good, in order to show how good our organizations are together, I'm going to have some deserters brutally murdered by their best friends. I'm sorry, I appreciate you as a comrade, but I don't think I want to be in your organization anymore. 
And if you don't show that you're nearly as strong and powerful as me, I might not think that either. I might be about to take a trip to the United States and then slip a note under a plane door so that we don't have to hang out anymore. (laughs) I bet you that's not the choice he made. So, well, no, Maury actually, this, like, he he feel he'd never had, like, the guts to have deserters executed. Um, But he, now that a girl had kind of beat him to doing it, like, he he decided he had to do something. This is like a macho thing. In order to, like, exert his power. Power. He throws a leadership training camp for the top leaders of the new organized group. Bad uh, camp? Don't go to that camp. Yeah, it seems like a bad camp. It was a bad camp. <laughs> so it was going to be like a leadership summit and a bonding experience for everybody. But most Which of- already know. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't wanna... not knowing any other context. Mm-hmm. Um, most importantly, it was going to be a chance for Mori to flex his power on a captive audience uh, by corrupting an essential tool of many leftist revolutionary groups, self-criticism. Um, yeah, I'm going to quote here from a write-up in Unseen Japan. The sort of group self-criticism Mori had in mind has long been practiced by various Japanese corporations and has become quite common among Japanese, amongst Japanese new left groups who called the process sokatsu. Operations once completed would become the subject of group discussion where criticism of others and of oneself was used to find whatever weakness had led to any form of failure. During the planning of the next operation, they would then seek to overcome whatever internal problems had been discovered. Within leftist groups, any such failures were often seen as ideological errors. However, the United Red Army was forced, as the United Red Army was forced further underground and group interaction became limited, criticism increasingly became aimed towards the personal weakness of individual members rather than the failures of group ideology. In the first days of December 1971, 29 people, consisting of 19 men and 10 women, made their way to the uh, Sangaku base lodged deep in mountainous rural Gunma Prefecture. For days, they lived and strategized and engaged in sessions. So, yeah, they start doing these big self-criticism sessions, isolated alone in the mountains, um, and things don't hmm. go well. Members of, like, the group that had stolen the guns have all these criticisms of the Red Army, and the Red Army members have all these criticisms of the other group. Um, And then there's punishments when people are found out when enough of the group agrees that, like, someone did something wrong. Um, So it starts with, like, Mm. forcing people to go days without eating um, or sitting for long periods of time in, like, this really uncomfortable position, like a yoga position that hurts after a while. Um, And Mori and Nagata are kind of like the judges at all of this. Determine, like, what people have to do to be punished properly before they get to rest. Um, So not a level-headed leadership. Not starting out in a healthy place. So until you got to the punishment part, I was going to say sarcastically that I've never ever been part of any leftist group that engaged in this type of behavior or for that matter any you know business that engaged in that kind of behavior mm-hmm. it's a thing that only happened this one time so but actually this actual thing maybe did only happen this one time because it gets way really out of hand very quickly um like it's a kind of situation you expect people to be petty and bitchy and cruel to each other but you um, also are talking about a underground communist insurrectionary mm-hmm. group and the group they teamed up with for no other reason than that they stole a fuck ton of guns. Yeah. And we already know. know that somebody got straggled, buried in shallow Two. graves. Two yeah. people. Got Having st- a group mm. self-critique session that no. also involves arbitrarily designated punishment, you don't think that that's going to end well. Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, I, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. So... By like after twenty days of this, um, twenty people were at this ship for three weeks. Yeah, people still aren't getting along. Um, like the two groups haven't come together well enough. They don't feel good about everything. Yeah, and so Mori and Nagata are like, we've got to, we've got to be more brutal about our punishments. That's how you get people to get like, along. People are not don't have the right amount of revolutionary fervor. Right. right. 
So we have to punish them more. It's like when when you get in a fight with your buddy and you're like, let's retreat to the mountains for three weeks and be brutally punished Mm -hmm. for our disagreements. Did they not have drugs? I don't think they did. Oh, see, there's there's the problem. Probably right there. drinking a bit. I don't know. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I'm gonna uh, the, the write up in Unseen Japan does a really good job of kind of laying this all out beautifully and terribly. So I'm going to read that. It all began with Ozaki Mitsuo. At 21 years old, the Tokyo University of Fisheries student had joined the United Red Army as part of the merger with that other group. The crimes for which he stood accused by his fellow comrades during the self-criticism session were of discussing the whereabouts of Red Army hideouts and weapon stashes with unauthorized persons. Additionally, he was seen as lacking the correct amount of revolutionary zeal. Mori's collective punishment for these offenses was to have Ozaki face off in a no-holds bout uh, in a no-holds bout with a much bulkier co-revolutionary. The others encircled the two fighters, ensuring Ozaki could not run away, and then the larger man began wailing on Ozaki. Beaten to the ground time and time again, Ozaki, bloodied, still rose for more punishment. He knew the only way out was to accept his physically imposed chastisement. Finally, the badly beaten Ozaki was allowed some rest. He then made a fatal mistake. He thanked Mori for the chance to allow himself to become a better revolutionary. There was murmuring from the surrounding group. Was Ozaki trying to flatter his way out of proper training? Surely this represented more spiritual weakness on his part. The solution was to have Ozaki spend the night standing at attention outside the mountain in the mountainous sub-zero temperatures. After some hours of this, Ozaki, shaken and injured, asked to be allowed to lay down. This was the last straw. Did his weakness know no bounds? He was brought back into the warmth of the lodge, only to face another intense beating. His comrades then carried Osaki's broken body back outside, where he was tied to a post that, in lieu of ideological metal, would keep him standing. He hung there for hours and hours, as his comrades ignored his increasingly weak cries for help. Occasionally, members were sent out to beat him again. By next morning, he was dead. And they didn't get along after that? It didn't help. (laughs) This did not bring them together as an unlikely family. It's also just such textbook cult shit, right? That you're like, oh, we're going to make people do horrible things to the only other people they are close to in the world. Yeah. To demonstrate their allegiance to what I have told them is our ideological commitment. And Mori spins this pretty much immediately and tells everybody that Ozaki had chosen to die because he'd like seen that he was fundamentally flawed and he'd bring the revolution down because of his weakness. So he he had to kill himself in and, order and to save the revolution. Of, of suicide was calling for help, was yes. calling for help while tied to so a post in sub He knew they'd beat him to death for it. Well... <laughs> You know, uh, yeah. So they decided to like celebrate this guy's death because uh, he'd made the movement stronger. Oh, did that's, they have a little party? They had a little party. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So the self criticism sessions continue. Um, and you know, self criticism is a strong characterization. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm just gonna put out there that like some people call in outside consultants mm-hmm. and kind of look like. They really are taking a deep dive yeah. down this one hole. Yeah. Right, they could have done a ropes course. They could have. They they did strangle some of them. Uh, they could so, have played paintball. They could have played paintball. Yeah, to make a really horrible story a little bit shorter, they this keeps happening every night to someone new. Um, they just keep murdering each other for ideological. Uh, uh, improperness. Are the last three left the most pure? Well, by the time it's over. 14 of the 29 people who went out there had been killed. Oh, um, that's less than I thought. Yeah, yeah. 
And the remaining 15 get along really well. They do get into a gunfight with the cops. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Uh, you know, maybe they should have led with that. Probably would have formed some, you know, trauma bonds. Yeah, so they purge like half of themselves. Well, You know, um, everyone will get along really well if you just kill everyone that doesn't agree with you already. I've always said that. And that's why Stalinist Russia had no backstabbing Mm -mm. at all. Zero Stalinist Russia. The place where everyone got along. Yep. That's what they call it. <laughs> um, so that's the podcast episode. Uh, B and Elaine, you want to tell people where they can find you? Um, yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Medium at 45th Absurdist. And you can find me in the mountains with 28 of my closest friends where we all try to make each other into better, better people. Better people. Uh, Not going on that camping trip. Get a trip, big just old so you know. pile of rocks for self-improvement purposes. And a post. And a post <laughs> for self-improvement. I'm going to the beach that day. Yeah. You know, Mom. We'll see. Three, so three weeks. We're that's the episode. Go um oh yeah, you can find us online at behindthebastards.com where we'll have all the sources for this episode. You can buy one of our FDA approved to cure all diseases or prevent all diseases. I forget which illegal claim we're making on the masks that we sell. Um, Bye. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.